Hey folks, just a quick note to let you know that with a bunch of volunteers, we are planning the first ever PyMC on. Yeah, we say PyMC on because it is on. This will be an asynchronous first conference for the Bayesian community with the goal of creating a space for community members to meet, interact, and share knowledge around PyMC. And the good news is that our call for proposal is open until September 4. So if you worked on a cool Bayesian project that you want to share, go to pymcon.com, pick your favorite format among the three we offer, and submit your talk by September 4. And please don't be shy. This is the first PyMC on ever. So by definition, this will be the first talk for anyone there, even for our dear BDFL, Chris Fonsbeck. So go to pymcon.com. You'll find the submission form, any other details, and also the ways you can volunteer to help us make this conference la place to be. Yeah, hope you'll appreciate that pun as much as I do. Okay, time for the show now. I bet you heard a lot about epidemiological compartment models such as SIR in the last few months, right? But what are they exactly? And why are they so useful for epidemiological modeling? Elisaveta Semenova will tell you why in this episode by working through the case study she recently wrote with the STAN team. She'll also tell us how she used Gaussian processes on spatial temporal data to study the spread of malaria or to feed dose response curves in pharmaceutical tests. And finally, she'll tell us how she used Bayesian neural networks for drug toxicity prediction in her latest paper and how Bayesian neural nets behave compared to classical neural nets. Oh, you'll also learn an interesting link between BNNs and Gaussian processes. I know, Lisa works on a lot of projects. Who is she, by the way? Well, she's a postdoctorate in Bayesian machine learning at the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca in Cambridge, UK. Elisaveta did her master's in theoretical mathematics in Moscow, Russia, and then worked in financial services as an actuary in various European countries. She then did a PhD in epidemiology at the University of Basel, Switzerland. This is where she got interested in health applications, be it epidemiology, global health, or more small-scale biological questions. But she'll tell you all that in the episode. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics. Episode 21, recorded June 3rd, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasedstats.anvil.app. That's learnbasedstats.anvil.app. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private LearnBase Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. and if you're thinking i'll be less than amazing let's adjust those expectations
patient. Wes Abazian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. Abazian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability cause every belief is provisional and when I kick a flow mostly I'm watching eyes widen maybe cause my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman. Hey guys, as is becoming usual, I'd like to thank my brand new supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full posterior tier or higher. The big challenge is always to not mispronounce any names, so here it goes. A big thank you to Dimitri Pananos, James Alloy, John Berezovsky, and Robin Taylor. Again, this makes a big difference and helps me pay for the editing and send more Bayesian wisdom your way. So a grateful thank you from Paris, keep your feedback coming, and now let's talk Gaussian processes and neural networks with Elisa. Elisabetta Semenova, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Hi, Alex. I'm really happy to have you on the show. You do an amazing number of things. I think you're the first polyglot to come to the show, meaning that you work kind of indifferently from what I understood with R and Stan, Python and PyMT3, or Julia and Turing. So well done on that. <laughs> oh yeah, thank you very much for inviting me here. It feels a bit strange to be on a podcast that I have been listening now for a while myself. And you've <laughs> interviewed so many people actually that I'm looking up to. It was a big surprise when you reached out to me and said, oh, let's record a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't call myself a polyglot. I do get excited about a lot of things, but I probably can describe myself as one of those people who are moderately good at many things, but are not really good at anything. Mm, I think you're a little bit modest, but if I go into your metaphor, would you say you're like the Python of a Bayesian statistician? Because you know this sentence about Python, it's the best second language. I heard, yeah, it's best second language in everything. Exactly, in everything, yeah. <laughs> best second language in everything. So maybe you're like that, you know. A second person. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think so. I think you are a little bit too harsh with yourself, but I think uh, listeners will be able to see that by themselves now. And thanks for your kind words about the podcast. I'm really happy to hear when guests on the podcast already listen to the podcast. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, please keep it up. Thanks. Okay, so let's talk about you now and let's start about your background because you started by studying mathematics. Well, how come and what's your story basically? Yeah, that's true. So my master's degree was in mathematics and I've done that in Russia. Initially, mm. actually, when I'm thinking about my school days, the thing I was enjoying the most was programming. But somehow the people around me told me that programming wasn't as universal as mathematics. So the adults have convinced me to study mathematics. And <laughs> in reality, I never had a good formal programming class at school. Rather, there was a friend of mine who was a student back in the days already and he came to our school and volunteered to organize a programming class for kids so we were at the start about 30 people and then we were 10 and then we were just five so it became like a small club that after our school day we would all stay at school and he would give us problems and he would allow us to solve those problems just on blackboard and he would never let us actually touch computer until we would talk through the the whole logic 
And I loved it so much. We're still quite good friends with that person. So I didn't go to computer science. I went to do maths. Yeah. So I studied a lot of topics and uh, subjects that I never used after math life. <laughs> yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, that's really funny. I like this a little bit of opposition between programming and mathematics from my point of view. They go hand in hand. So that's kind of funny. I remember in high school and so on, we were doing mathematics, but never programming. Now that I think about it with my hindsight bias, that's super weird to me that we didn't do more programming and so on. And I would actually be glad to have done that before, but it's no problem. Now we can learn every day and that's good. But it's always better to start early, I'd say, programming. That's true. One good thing about pure math probably is that it teaches you abstract thinking. So when you speak about applied mathematics, yes, I would agree it does go hand in hand with programming. But when we speak about pure maths, it goes to such level of generalization that you can't actually implement it programmatically. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually now you are not doing a PhD in mathematics. So now I'm doing a postdoc in Bayesian machine learning. But before that, I was doing PhD in epidemiology. And my career path has never been linear. So after my master's, I started a career in financial services because I just had to make money somehow. And, and through one of those jobs, I got into Switzerland and I realized how amazing the country was. And then I decided, okay, A, I want to come back to science. B, I want to live in Switzerland. <laughs> so that was my first criteria. And then I actually came there to do a PhD in theoretical maths mm -hmm. but I dropped out after some time because my reasoning was a bit wrong so when you do theoretical mathematics after a while you realize that even if you manage to write a paper so we did write a paper then the definition of being an author on the paper mm -hmm. means they are the three people who fully understand what's written in this paper and there are maybe another 10 people in the world who understand vaguely what's in this paper so <laughs> it wasn't very compelling and I wanted to move to something more applied and tangible and I always felt the passion generally for global health and transition to epidemiology was very logical. So this was the first time in my career probably when I was really motivated and wanted to become better at what I was doing. Okay, that's funny to see how you ended up there. Actually, it was quite a conscience in the end because it's not linear as you said yeah. but you didn't really end up doing a PhD in epidemiology by pure chance it was a deliberate choice on your part yeah so there was a lot of trial and error before that mostly error but <laughs> then <laughs> after several errors I landed in a place where I finally felt very motivated I knew why I was doing things I was doing and this work was giving me the skills that I I wanted to gain, not to mention all the people. So epidemiology attracts also certain type of people, just their personal traits. And this was the first time when I actually felt comfortable. Yeah. Getting back to your studies in mathematics, I'm wondering if maybe the abstract thinking and also general tooling, it helped you develop. Do you think it helped you doing whatever you wanted to do, provided that it had to do with some mathematics stuff? 
Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. So later on, when I started encountering different mathematical tools for solution of different problems, I actually realized that, yes, indeed, the mathematical foundations were very important. So transitioning between Gaussian processes or ordinary differential equations or partial differential equations or stochastic differential equations or machine learning or Bayesian neural networks, making those transitions doesn't feel like a big deal, probably due to the background. Yeah, I see now more clearly how you ended up doing epidemiology, but I'm still wondering how you got introduced to Bayesian methods. How were you introduced to them and maybe why were they interesting for your PhD or more generally for your current work? So I will start with my PhD first, because this is exactly the time when I encountered Bayesian methods. And actually, the first statistical models that I ever wrote, I wrote in windbugs and jugs. It's only later on, actually now, during my postdoc, that I use non-Bayesian tools sometimes. I know that people learn probably statistics vice versa. They use the classical statistical approach first. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then they hear about Bayesian methods and try to pick that up. Well, for me, it was the other way around. <laughs> and for a long time, I was not realizing that there was so many applications around and people around who were not using Bayesian methods. So this was really eye-opening for me to realize that. That must have been weird. Because most of the people don't use Bayesian methods. So you must have been like, oh, wait, there are so many people out there doing non-Bayesian stuff. <laughs> yeah, now I know, now I know. But uh, so when I started my PhD, I didn't have any overview of the field whatsoever, be it epidemiology or statistics. I knew very close to nothing, probably. So I started diving into was the literature that either my PhD advisor or the other PhD students from my group recommended to me. And of course, all of that literature was Bayesian. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so that means that basically in your formal training in mathematics, you didn't really encounter much statistics and let alone Bayesian statistics, right? So we had probability theory. This is kind of the reverse direction of statistics. I did, of course, study probability theory, but it was closer to measure theory rather than anything applied. Okay, interesting. And actually, I love one sentence you had when we were preparing for the episode. I think you said something like that you used INLA at the start, since <laughs> it is fast, but yep. it is approximate. So you opted for slow but exact MCMC. I like this spirit and this sentence. It's the thing I, I always say to people telling me, oh, but Bayesian is really slow. And well, first, I'm a little skeptical also of people wanting something like really fast in like two seconds instead of, I don't know, two minutes, which is not that big. If that gives you a better posterior distribution and if you're not in an industry where you need something to be really as fast as the second. Not everybody needs something as fast as in finance, for instance. If your model takes three minutes to sample, but then you get a whole posterior distribution and better estimates and not only point estimates. Yeah, I think the trade-off is good. And as you said, I prefer slow but exact solution to approximate, but that's good. <laughs> Definitely, yes. So as you mentioned, during my PhD, I was working with spatial processes and there, when I started my PhD, these were exactly the days when INLA just appeared on the horizon for dealing with spatial models. And it became 
very popular very quickly. But yes, there is a trade-off. So speed always comes at the cost of something else. And now there is a similar topic in my work, working with, say, Bayesian neural networks again. Do you go for exact MCMCs or do you really opt for variation inference? Mm -hmm. So as long as you are able to run an MCMC, I would always opt for an MCMC since I don't work with any applications that have to run real time. That's yeah, fine. Exactly. Yeah, as long as time is not critical for you. I think that's the spirit. <laughs> Actually, I, I'd like to talk about epidemiology now because yes, you've been busy these last few months because I heard there was like a new virus in town. Don't know if you heard about it. So you recently wrote a case study with the STAN team on epidemiological comportment models. I think the most well-known is SIR. So if I understood correctly, because I read a lot of stuff in the last three months about these models, but I really didn't know much about them before this outbreak. They are like super interesting, by the way. And the case study you wrote with the STAN team is really well written. And I'll put that in the show notes for people. It's not only for epidemiological specialists. It's for every people wanted to fit these kinds of models in STAN. So I really appreciated the tone you had in the article. So... If I understood correctly, these models, the SIR models, are kind of state-of-the-art epidemiological models. Can you tell us, well, first, if that statement is true, and tell us also quickly what their strengths and weaknesses are, and walk us through the case study quite quickly by while doing that? It's a challenge. <laughs> well, so first of all, let me address the state-of-the-art statement. Whether it's state-of-the-art or not, yes or no? I think here the big picture is important. Yes, SIR type of models are very popular at the moment, but no type of modeling actually has a monopoly at modeling infectious disease transmission. So if we look at the big picture, yes, there are compartmental models. What are they? They are the models of a population when we divide the whole population into homogeneous subgroups. So in case of SIR, we divide the whole population into susceptible, infectious, and recovered. And one option is to model transition from one compartment to another compartment via a system of, say, ordinary differential equations, mm. which is a deterministic model. Another way is to model those transitions stochastically and uh, describe the process in stochastic manner. For instance, branching processes can do that. There is another class of models which are agent-based. So instead of modeling the volume of a subpopulation, we actually model each individual and the transition of every individual from one group to another. So the models of that last class are computationally very intense. Imagine we're modeling a population even of 1,000 individuals. So we need to model 1,000 particles, which is not very straightforward. Having said that, yes, there is no monopoly, but just for computational reasons, the ODE-based models, probably at the moment the most popular ones, but even when we look at the list of models which emerged now to study COVID dynamics, the Imperial College model is not an ODE model. This is a branching process model. So having said that, yeah, there is no monopoly. What about the case study? Yes, it does deal with one of the simplest models of disease transmission. This is the SIR. Again, so people speak a lot of SIR 
This is just one case of a model because we assumed there is, let's say, a recovery process. There is a list of very strong assumptions behind each model. Say, if we assume that individuals do not gain any immunity, then the SAR model becomes an SIS model. So each individual from being infectious comes back to the susceptible state. So what are strengths and weaknesses? The strength of 4D-based models is probably their interpretation. They're very intuitive yeah. and basically you don't need to be a very experienced epidemiologist to write them. All you need to know is what assumptions are important, how do I model ODEs, and then you can pick up any case study similar to the one we're talking about, and basically you're all set. What are the weaknesses? So ODE is deterministic, so they do not incorporate any stochasticity. This is probably a philosophical question. Do you believe that everything in the world is stochastic or deterministic? <laughs> I do believe that our universe is deterministic, just we don't have the tools to describe each single particle. That's a very Bayesian way of thinking, I think. <laughs> Okay, but when we come a bit onto a realistic level, things are rather stochastic than deterministic, and uh, ODEs are not able to capture that. Another class of models that I have not listed yet are the SDEs, stochastic differential equations. So they are the differential equations which incorporate stochasticity, but they are harder to implement, that's why they're not very popular. Yeah, yeah, because already the ODEs are, as you said, quite simple to understand because every equation in the model corresponds to a compartment in the model and each compartment is like a class of the population. So they're really easy to understand and interpret. But as you say, fitting ODEs is not trivial. So it takes a lot of computational resources. I'm guessing that classic ODEs take a lot of time to sample then dynamic ODEs even more. Yeah, and the numerical integration of an ODE is a standalone huge problem. How do you do that? Forget the MCMC around it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for this very quick summary. In any case, a case study will be in the show notes. Also, your contact information through Twitter also will be in the show notes. So people interested can contact you and read the case study. It's really very good. And you have done a very good job here of summing it up in just a few minutes. But there is a lot of material in there. So it's really interesting to read it. So the case study, again, there were some brilliant people also working on it. Charles Margosian, who is an expert on ODEs, yeah. and Julian mm. Riohi, who is actually doing some COVID modeling, and Leo, who is just a rising star from France. <laughs> some brilliant people worked on it. Yeah, clearly. I could talk about these kinds of models for the whole episode because they're very interesting and I really discovered epidemiological models, to be honest, during the COVID pandemic, but I discovered it was super interesting very complex models <laughs> with a lot of numerical difficulties and, and nuances, but super interesting models. But as I said in the intro, you do a lot of stuff. So I want to talk about this other stuff. I know you work a lot on Gaussian processes and we already talked about Gaussian processes in this podcast, but 
not a lot. So it's good to remind listeners of what they are and when would you use Gaussian processes, basically? Yeah, so if I had to summarize it in very, very simple and accessible way, I would say that Gaussian processes can be used when we know that dependence between our data points is continuous and we don't know much more. Mm, okay. So yes, they are very flexible and they are very interesting because Gaussian processes is a type of a non-parametric model. Yeah. So parametric models are simpler in a way because we understand which parameters exactly govern them in which way. They are simpler to fit, but Gaussian processes, they provide distributions over function space. And it's only when we fix certain points, we are able to tame a specific GP. Yeah. So that makes non-parametric models very flexible. But again, flexibility comes at the cost. Mm. So Gaussian process are quite expensive. Yeah, quite expensive to feed and sometimes hard to feed, yeah. 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 yeah, okay, so basically like a continuous variable with a notion of distance, or it could be age, or it could be like geographical distance. Exactly, yeah. So the area of spatial epidemiology is a perfect domain for GPs to be applied. At least at least I was doing in my PhD, yes. And uh, yeah. so what we do there with spatial processes and the distributions of diseases or some environmental factors. And in most of those cases, we tend to believe that correlations or let's say dependencies, they vary continuously in space. Okay. For for instance, when we look at the distribution of an infectious disease, so my PhD was concerned with malaria or schistosomiasis, we try to understand how does this disease distribute in space and which factors to drive the disease transmission. And then we understand, oh, those factors such as elevation or temperature, humidity, they vary in space continuously. So the distribution of cases also will change in space and time continuously. This is why GPs and spatial disease modeling is a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, you should print some stickers with this sentence. So that's very interesting. So that means that your models are trying to see if the malaria, for instance, is spreading, how the malaria is spreading from neighborhoods to neighborhoods. And the idea with Gaussian processes is to see how the covariance structure is between the neighborhoods. And the idea would be that the closest you are from a neighborhood, depending on some features, it can be geographical distance, but I guess it can be also other features of the neighborhood, like like poverty or sanitation or stuff like that, then your prior is, well, I think that these neighborhoods with these characteristics are closest to each other and then the malaria will be able to spread faster in these neighborhoods. But I don't know the exact covariance structure, so I'm going to let the Gaussian process discover that for me through the hyperparameters of the GP, right? So part of what you said describes the split of the model into fixed effects and random effects. Mm. So the fixed effects, yes, they are exactly the covariates that you have listed, such as poverty, depending on what disease we are modeling. But yes, in sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of diseases are linked to poverty. 
So yeah, the fixed effects are modeled via the covariates which we observe and can measure. And then the latent part, this continuous part, is modeled by the latent Gaussian process. So the covariance structure, we actually need to define it. So of course, the parameters of the covariance will then be inferred. But before the run, we run the model, we need to choose a certain kernel of the covariance function ourselves. Yeah, okay. So this means that when you're speaking about the continuous dimension, you're speaking about, for instance, when you're dealing with spatial data, you're talking about geographical distance between neighborhoods, for instance, right? Yes. That would yes. be your continuous dimension. If we model data on the neighborhood level, if you mean that the data is aggregated, yes, this is aerial model. When we represent our whole domain as a union of small sub areas, but there is other types of models where we actually could collect data at points and those points there might be either fixed in space then we're dealing with a geostatistical process or those points might be random in space then we're dealing with point pattern data and then we model it via log gaussian cox process and that's exactly what my phd was about but this last type of modeling mm. and then depending on how many let's call them entities so in the aerial case the number of entities is the number of areas and in case of geostatistical log gaussian cox process then we cover the whole area into a very fine grid and then the number of those entities increases drastically and as we said gps are very expensive and complexity grows cubically with the number of entries oh, so yeah. going from aerial data to point pattern data is a huge computational leap oh yeah okay that's super interesting i think i understand better so basically the interesting thing is that it helps you model this dependency between entities across a continuous dimension so that could be space as you said, like a geographical distance, but that could be also temporal distance, I guess. So you could model time series with Gaussian processes, right? Yes, people do that. One thing to have in mind about time series and Gaussian processes is that the kernel matters. So for many Gaussian processes, the most popular kernels, they induce stationary Gaussian processes, which in terms of time series means that correlation from time point now to the time point minus one is the same as from time point now to the time plus one, which in terms of time series, we might not always want. So we might not always want the symmetry. Yeah. Very interesting point. Can you define quickly what the kernel represents for the GP and for the covariance right. uh, matrix of the GP? So if I have to put it in simple words, this is a function that defines the smoothness of the function. There is, say, one governing parameter that is length scale, and it defines at which length our points are still correlated and at what distance they cease to be correlated. It's kind of an assumption in the model, so that's why you can choose different kernels to see how these assumptions make the posteriors different. Yeah, so A, how smooth is the function, which means like how weakly is the curve that we are willing to accept, or then how far does our correlation go? 
really want to try GPs now. <laughs> and by the way, I think you're working currently on a flexible dose response curve fitting with GPs. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really see here what the continuous dimension is because I understood for time, for space, for age, for instance, but here, what would be the continuous dimension? Yeah, so we're now moving from epidemiological setting to pharmacology setting. We're talking about testing drugs and we want to understand how effective drugs are or how toxic drugs are and at what dose, for instance, is a drug still safe and at what dose does it become toxic? What do we do? We start with a small dose, we make a measurement, then we increase the dose, and then we make a measurement and so on. So since we are speaking about nature around us, most of the things are continuous. That's why we assume that in reality, this curve is a continuous mm. curve, but we are only able to measure it at certain doses. Mm. And in some cases, parametric models are very suitable. For instance, sigmoidal curves are very popular in that setting, but sometimes they are not. Sometimes some compounds may display very irregular behavior, and we're not able to pick in advance any parametric model that would capture this behavior well. So then the dependence and the correlation is between the doses which means the doses which are close would have similar values and the doses which are far from each other will have less similar values. So it's like a new dimension similar to age, for instance, that you could use GPs for, basically. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I think what I've just said is reformulating the first law of geography. I may be phrasing it in the wrong way, but I think the first law of geography says that things which are close are correlated more than things which are far, which are correlated yeah. less. Yeah, so that's basically what the GPs help you do and right. they help you incorporate this scientific background into your models. Yeah, right? so probably I can summarize my current career and saying that I do geostatistics on those response curves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Time is flying by. I want to ask you about another of your recent projects, which is about the Bayesian neural network for yeah. toxicity prediction. Now it's so, getting exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's super exciting. Well, that's related, I think, a bit to what we just talked about, because it's again about drug, I gather. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing. But it's the first time we're talking about a Bayesian neural network on the show. So first, can you tell us what a neural network is and maybe what a Bayesian neural network is? I mean, what does the Bayesian structure bring to a neural network? You know, it's always the simplest question is the hardest to answer. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> what is a Bayesian neural network? This is a statistical model that takes some inputs and makes predictions via a certain architecture. Mm. So it does certain transformation to inputs to turn them into outputs. And what are those transformations? So there are different architectures for neural networks. Let's speak about the simplest, the multi-layered perceptron. This is an architecture that consists of layers and we pass information from one layer to the other. And each layer consists of nodes, Within each node, we perform a certain transformation to its input, and voila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if this was clear, but it's hard, like, how do you explain A plus B? 
Yeah, that's a hard question. But I think our listeners will understand. Maybe can you tell us also what the Bayesian structure add to the mix? Because I think here you helped us understand what a neural network is and what does the Bayesian structure add in these instances? Sure. I'm not sure I've done good work now with neural network. I'll try to do better job with Bayesian neural network. So imagine a certain architecture of a neural network. And in the classical setting, we would go about this model via optimization. So we will try to find a point estimate for each of the parameters. We're passing information from one layer to the other. We are doing it using weights and biases. So mm. we connect the previous layer to the next layer via transformations. So we need weights and biases. Think just coefficients. Mm. In a regular setting, those coefficients would be represented as numbers. So when we say we're training a neural network, this means we are looking for the best set of numbers that will make the prediction. When we translate this whole architecture into the Bayesian setting, now instead of point estimate for each of the weights and biases, we have the whole distribution describing this weight or bias. And what do we gain? So like in any Bayesian model, together with the estimates, we get the uncertainty information around it, which in the context of pharmaceutical industry and toxicity prediction, you can yeah. imagine is very important. Yeah. But an additional feature of Bayesian priors is the regularizing property. So when we are training classical neural networks, we need to pick probably some regularization technique. We need to think about it. Do we want to use a dropout or do we want to add some penalty regularization? Also, how do we perform optimization? While in the Bayesian context, all those troubles are being taken away from us, all we need to specify, we need to specify the priors. <laughs> And then priors are able to provide regularization and parameter estimation for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that in the end, well, either for very complex models like neural networks or for the simplest of the linear regressions, one of the huge benefits of the Bayesian structure is that with the priors, you get regularization and uncertainty estimation. I mean, for every model, you get that. And for every model, it's a plus to have. So it's really amazing to see that even for a neural network, that's what you get when you pick good priors and you think hard about them and try to inform them with your domain knowledge, then you get a very useful regularization of your posterior estimates. Yes, especially for neural networks, because yeah. the type of data sets that I work with in toxicity, they're very small data sets. Mm. And regular neural networks, they're made to work with large data sets. So on a small data set, they would overfit. They would not be able to deal well with small data sets. And uh, yeah, this is the window of regularization that we get from Bayesian priors. Yeah. Which honestly was a bit, not a surprise to me, but whenever I used to think about Bayesian priors in the past as the first top thing out of my head was always that we can use historical information. So this was for me always the primary role of priors. While in the Bayesian neural network setting, there is not so much prior knowledge that we can use because there is not much interpretability in those weights and biases. But it is the regularization that matters the most here. 
yeah, it can guard you against overfitting risk, especially for small data set. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I think that's a weird question to ask you, but I want to ask it anyway, because I've never worked on Bayesian neural networks. I guess that's why I need to ask you this question. From what I understood, neural networks are popular because they're flexible, because they allow you to model non-linearities. But in my head, it's also one of the reasons why Gaussian processes are popular. So I'm wondering what's the difference between GPs and Bayesian neural networks? And more generally, why you picked, for instance, Bayesian neural networks to work on this project instead of Gaussian processes? Mm -hmm. Very good and very deep question. <laughs> so first of all, let's just start from the mechanics of it. What are they? Gaussian processes are non-parametric and BNNs. Am I allowed to use abbreviations BNNs? So I BNNs no. are yeah. parametric. While BNNs are parametric via those parameters, they do not provide interpretability. So in a way, we don't care for the model whether it's a BNN or GP. So mm -hmm. and from here, it might sound that GPs are more universal than BNNs. Mm. There is also a very well-known link between GPs and BNNs in the sense that if we construct a Bayesian neural network with one hidden layer and we scale the priors for the nodes of the hidden layer very carefully, then as the number of nodes in this hidden layer tends to infinity, then the whole model converges to a Gaussian process. Interesting. Which might lead us to this intuition that any small BNN that is less than infinity wide is a submodel of a GP, which is not exactly a correct intuition because the scaling is very important. So for instance, the BNN that's used in the paper, it is not a submodel of a GP because the scaling is not done. And oh, furthermore, by the way, this result was generalized also to more layers, not just one hidden layer, but to more hidden layers. So what have we understood now? In some cases, BNNs can be seen as submodels, less universal than GPs. And in a way, there is more hassle to define a BNN because we need to choose how many nodes. Well, for GPs, we don't need to choose anything. There's one GP, was, well, there are hyperparameters, but also in BNNs, there are hyperparameters. The thing is that GPs have scalability issues. And this is the reason why in some cases would prefer a BNN to a GP. Okay. So that wasn't a stupid question after all. It's a very deep question. And honestly, the initial motivation to make this work, so when my advisor Stan Lazik and I were initially designing this project, we said, oh, let's run a BNN and compare it to a GP. Hmm. But then it, we diverted a lot and now it became what it became. But yeah, I still would be happy to set my foot in the future into this field of running them in parallel and also trying to understand more. Yeah. yeah, so basically also that means that if the data you had for this project was less high dimensional, you could have used a GP before a BNN because you wouldn't have the problem of scalability of the GPs that you talked about, right? For this particular case, I have estimated based on the number of points that I had and based on the architecture that I applied, yes, I have calculated the complexity of a GP and the complexity of a BNN that I would make. And the conclusion was, oh, it's more efficient here to make a BNN. 
Okay, that's interesting. Okay, and is it easy for people to do this kind of calculation? I mean, because it could be very useful to compute that beforehand when you're like, oh yeah, I'd like to use a GP to work on this project, but then before doing anything else, I'm going to compute what the complexity of the GP would be. And if it's too much, if I know that it goes above the threshold for the GP's complexity, well, then I'm going to have to switch. How do you do these kind of calculations? Yeah, so roughly speaking, the complexity of a GP is the cube of the number of input points. So if the number of input points is n, the complexity is n cube. I must make a note here. I'm talking now about GP without tricks because there are multiple tricks for GPs. In some lucky cases, you can make decompositions and you can reduce complexity from cubic down to even linear. So if those tricks are available, then I think most of the cases GP would be superior to a BNN. If those funky tricks are not available, standard complexity is n cube. And then to calculate the complexity of a BNN, we need to see how many layers do we have. Because basically the mathematics of a neural network is algebra, so algebraic matrix multiplications. So we need to see which matrices or what dimensions we are multiplying, and then it would be easy to see which complexity is higher. Okay, super interesting. Maybe just before talking about the paper, do you have like a rough idea, rough rule of thumb that you use in your projects when you're thinking about using a GP, but then you see the data set and the scale of the data set and you're like, oh yeah, no, there is too many input points in this data set, I can't use a GP. Do you have a rule of thumb like that that you use and you can give listeners? The first question to ask wouldn't be the complexity, but meaning of the model. So what is the actual thing we're modeling? Do we need to run GPs at all? So first I would just start with common sense and the setting. Imagine I have unlimited computational power. What will be the best model in this situation? Yeah. And from there, probably trying to step back and see what is the nearest realistic model we can do. So I think the question about complexity would only be if we understand that our ideal model that we know reflects the biology or chemistry or physics or epidemiology of the phenomenon that we're modeling. So that model is not very feasible, then we will start asking ourselves various questions. Okay. And that's a hopeful message, I think. It's not like you see the data and you're like, oh no, forget it. There is like more than, I don't know, 1 million data points in there. I can't fit the GP to that, so forget it. It comes later in the process. It might sound funny, but I've seen also GPs being applied now to COVID data, I think. I saw some post or tweet or I saw it somewhere on the internet. Yeah. And then what do you feed GPs? Because you don't explain anything by GPs. <laughs> I see what you mean. Because so, yeah, if we model disease data and we want to understand something about the disease, then we should rather opt for the model that will be able to extract some information from it. Yeah, because you're saying that basically the GP's hyperparameters are good to feed the data and to see where it's going. But in that case, for instance, it could be good, as you said, for disease modeling in neighborhoods and so on, as you did for malaria. 
But then depending on how you apply the GP, then you could not be able to understand what you're modeling because your parameters are not interpretable. Right. Yeah. So the question behind is always, what's the data generating process? Like in life, not in our head, not in the set of the models that we have experience with, but in life. Yeah. Speaking like a true Bayesian. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, can you walk us through the paper, by the way, where you're using a Bayesian neural network and why are BNNs in that case adapted to toxicity prediction? And also maybe why is the latter important? Let me start with that. Yeah, why is toxicity important? <laughs> toxicity is one of the main reasons for drug attrition. You might have heard about some drugs which were released to the market and years later mm. we have learned that it was toxic in one or another way and uh, drugs can cause toxicity also to different organs. So it is very important to be able to predict toxicity very early on in the drug development process. Also, there has been the standard around for a long time to test drugs on animals, but it has been shown also that animal models do not translate very well to humans, which emphasizes the importance of in silico modeling, so on computer models. Toxicity is a problem. And uh, the data set that we had there had ordered outcomes, which means the output was a categorical ordered variable going from one, which is non-toxic, to two, medium toxic, and three, that's highly toxic. What was uh, important at the start of this work to define relevant measures to evaluate the performance of the model because what can you do? We, you can measure accuracy, but accuracy as such isn't very good. Our data was imbalanced, so at least it had to be the balanced accuracy. But also the predictions that we make, they are on continuous scale. And then using that abundance of information to only summarize it as one to three to then evaluate the model, this is very wasteful. So it was important to understand that, for instance, ordered Brier score is a good measure. Also, this model, the BNN, is building on a model from the previous work, which is the proportional odds logistic regression. So that model was already doing quite well, and the idea was to try and improve that model. So it was the first level of comparison. We had an old model, it was fine, can we do better? So the answer was yes, we can do better according to a series of measures that we looked at. Then the second question was, we have used now Bayesian neural network. How does it compare to a regular neural network? Yeah. Because, yeah, as we discussed, neural networks can be regularized with dropouts or penalty. So there is an array of models then with different dropout probabilities and penalties compared to the Bayesian neural network. And again, the conclusion was that Bayesian neural network does self-regularization. Hmm. We don't need to take care of it. And in the end effect produces better results as well. So there is also a few things that I was planning to do but have not done. I just decided to wrap up the project because otherwise it could have gone forever. And one of them we've discussed already that was comparing BNN to GPs, but also what I have started doing but I wasn't able to finish for technical reasons that was using the sparsity inducing priors. Because I was doing this work in the probabilistic modeling language called Turing, 
which is embedded in Julia, and、uh, it is a very young language. It's developing very quickly, very rapidly. Back then, when I was trying to implement it, it wasn't very straightforward for me to implement Horseshoe. I just tried it once and didn't work, and I moved on. I'm sure today it would work. So why would Horseshoe prior be important? It can be applied in between different layers. So if we try apply it between the entry,、uh, the input layer, and the hidden layer, then it can help us extract some information about interpretability. So which of the inputs influence Influences the next layer the most, and from there probably we might be able to deduce something about the influence of inputs to the output. And if we apply, for instance, horseshoe prior between the hidden and the output layer, it might help us understand whether the number of nodes that we have defined is optimal. So if we would see that there is no reduction in that transition, means our number of Nodes is optimal, or even too few. But if we would see that there will be a lot of reduction, then probably we have chosen to use too many nodes. That's the work that I wish I had done, but I haven't. <laughs> Maybe you'll have the the opportunity to do to do it later, and and then come back on the podcast to talk about it. it sounds really really fascinating. I had a more trivial question that would be: How do you code that up? How did you code the Bayesian neural network you used in the paper? And is there even probabilistic programming language modules somewhere, or do you have to build everything from scratch? So in the case of this paper, as I mentioned, I used Julia and Turing. What's great about Turing, it is embedded in Julia, which means any tool that is available in Julia. Can be used within Turing. So, say we have already written up some data generative model, be it an ODE or neural network. And by the way, for neural networks in Julia, there is a package called Flux, Flux.gl. So the best analogous I know is Keras. So very easy to define the architecture of your neural network, and then you plug it into Turing. And when I started working on this project, then there was already a tutorial by the Turing team out there where they were showing the combination of Turing and Flux. So it was very easy to start. I have also not for this project, but just to try it out, I also have tried those in BIMC three. Not in Stan though. So in Stan, you would have to code up the Bayesian neural network yourself. Did you do it also in PMC three? Yes, it's not terrible again because the data generating process is matrix multiplication. Okay, so you basically code up your Bayesian neural net through matrix multiplication. Yes. Okay, so you can do that more easily with Turing because you have access to all the other infrastructure, as you said. But you can also do it in PyMC three. It comes at the price of doing more of that by hand. Exactly. So the difficulty with PyMC three, say, would be that you need to call to Theano objects. So if you code this data generating process up, it's only valid within the PyMC three program. While in Julia, if you are already Working with the Bayesian neural network in Flux outside of Turing, you can just literally plug it into the Turing model. Evola, and here it is. Yeah. And this terms Stan and PyMC three look a bit similar to me, so the whole architecture、yeah. needs to be coded up by hand. 
Yeah, this feature of the Trulia language looks really amazing. Everything is combinable with everything. Yeah, exactly. We talked about that in some episodes I did already, episode 13 with Chachara, but then we also talked about that in episode 19 with Cameron Pfeiffer from the Turing team. Oh, was he here on the podcast? The podcast didn't air yet. It will be episode 19. So at the time this episode goes out, you'll have heard about episode 19 with Cameron and episode 22 also with Seth Axon, who is a developer of RFS.jl. And um, we talked about this compatibility of Julia. It looks amazing indeed. Okay, great. Actually, that's also a good segue to ask you. I talked about that at the beginning of the show, but yeah, you were quite fluent in a lot of tools. So maybe can you sum up the tools you use for doing your Bayesian inference projects, as you talked about there? Generally, I would distinguish between general purpose programming languages and probabilistic programming languages. So for general purpose, I'm familiar with R, Python, Julia. So when do I use which? R when it comes to epidemiology or working with biologists, because this is the language that those people use. Python to work with computer scientists or to go to hackathons. So when I was doing my PhD, I was going to a lot of hackathons and that's actually where and how and why I learned Python. And then Julia for fun, but more for potential. It's like an investment in the future. You know, the main rule of investment is diversification. So I make sure that I do diversify. <laughs> and then for probabilistic programming languages, Stan, of course, that I use in combination with R. Then a PyMC3 that I use with Python, also PyStan sometimes, but it's mostly when I need to read someone else's work that's written in this combination of languages. And then Julia plus Turing. Yeah, that's good pairing you've got there. That's really nice. And each of these tools is really amazing. And that's great that you can work in all of them. That's also why maybe you do so many different projects. <laughs> so I think we're getting short on time, but I don't want to take too much of your time because you've already been very generous with it. So I'm going to ask you a question. I often ask people on the podcast because I like to focus more on problems and failures than on successes. So I wonder if you have some common difficulties that you encounter with your work, your models, your data, and how do you usually solve them? Yes, of course. So my problems are small data and missing data. Then models, I think we all know the main problem of all models is the modeler. <laughs> I encounter that issue all the time. What other problems? Things are evolving. So this is both a very good thing and very bad thing. And uh, Julian Turing is a perfect example. The thing how I have learned them a year ago, they have evolved a lot. Yeah. And yeah. even Stan. So I was using Stan throughout my PhD till recently I just picked up one of the old models and I've noticed on discourse that things have evolved. Things are faster, better now. I wouldn't call it a problem, but it might feel as a hurdle all the time that things are changing, but most of the times they're changing for the better. Yeah. So yeah, if I can summarize this problem, I need to cope with things improving all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also always cope with the fact that at the beginning, the MCMC sampler just won't fit. So you have to come up with ideas for how to fit your model, basically. <laughs> 
And we talked about that actually, like for instance, how to reparameterize your models in episode 17 with Maria Gorinova. Very interesting work that she's doing about that. Before letting you go, I have to ask you two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, that's a really hard one. The first impulse, of course, to say climate change or energy or anything else on that level. But in the end effect, I think it all boils down to human behavior. So I would try to have influence on human behavior. And how would I do that? Since I'm quite still passionate about low income setting and low income countries, I would probably focus on public health in those regions and resolve, first of all, health issues and education issues. Hmm. Nice. Very interesting answer. Another idea that I like very much is the universal income. I still yeah. don't know how well this would work in reality, but I do believe that we all would live more consciously if, if we didn't have to think about survival all the time. Hmm. And that potentially would change our behavior and that would potentially resolve by itself all the other questions that I had the impulse to say that I want to change that. Yeah, fascinating topics indeed. And the second question, which is not easier usually, is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? To me, this question is quite easy. Yeah, good. Because I think all of my heroes, they are very alive and <laughs> many of them are coming as guests to your podcast. Oh. For instance, during my PhD, Aki Vactory was a big hero of mine because whatever problem or issue I had, I would always look up and in most of the cases, he would already have a paper discussing the problem that I had. <laughs> so I did meet him in real life and uh, I met Andrew Gelman and uh, yeah, it would be great to stay more in touch with the dev teams of Stan Turing, PyMC. They are the heroes of our day. <laughs> and uh, maybe if someday you can organize a Alex and Dora conference and invite all your guests. They're all my heroes. <laughs> That's a nice idea. Maybe I should organize a big dinner with all the dev teams of Turing, PyMC, and, <laughs> and Stan. To me, they are the greatest scientists of past and present. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of you to say. And Aki and Andrew, if you're listening and you go to Cambridge, UK... Lisa Vita would be happy to have dinner with you. <laughs> Lisa, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It was really a pleasure having you. You do so many amazing stuff. I have to say it was a little frustrating to me because I had too many questions for you. So you definitely have to come back one day. In the meantime, I'm sure listeners have a better understanding of GPs, patient neural networks, and of epidemiological models now. As always, I'll put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Lisa, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you very much, Alex. I'm very humbled to come as a guest to your podcast and please keep it up. Thank you very much. Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app 
for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.envol.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.